Wednesday morning, and today we have a special episode, and we're going to have a few of these in the next coming weeks. Dr. John Patrick was at the CMDA conference. CMDA stands for Christian Medical and Dental Association, where I'm sure some of you guys know John from, and we're going to be playing one of those talks today. And today's topic that John's going to be covering is the dismantling of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Thank you, Alan. Uh, it's always a pleasure to come to the States. I owe you a lot. Uh, your hospitality to me and to my wife and some of my children as well has been quite astonishing. Uh, I don't think you realize what a gift you have in the sense that you practice hospitality so well. Uh, so many of my academic friends think that America is defined by Los Angeles and New York. And I say they don't actually belong in America. They should be an offshore island. But uh, the America I know is quite different. I mean, I do go to those places, but that's a missionary activity. Uh, but um, and it's very nice of uh, Alan to include Sally in that. And, uh, yeah, she's an amazing woman, uh, but she's not courageous. She has no fear. Uh, <laughs> courage, courage requires you to get over fear. She's never had any, so she has no courage. Uh, a woman who will tell a drunken soldier with a Kalashnikov to put it down with such authority that he does, doesn't have fear. Uh, and there is such a thing as moral authority. Uh, Africans are more aware of, of that than we are. We have lost the cate that category in our society. Witch doctors would often say to me, I can't touch you because your spirit is too strong. I, I didn't know what he was talking about. It's not really a category in my world. It should be. Uh, I recognize that now more as time goes by. So thank you, Alan, for the introduction. I will miss you. Uh, we've been traveling together on and off for 30 years. Mike McLaughlin and, and Alan and I have been wor working together that long because of David Stevens. Uh, somebody warned me when uh, David Stevens got ho hold of me. He said, he'll take over your life, you know. <laughs> he did. Um, but it's been good uh, because I, I was... Um, the kind of professor you know only too well, walks in, gives his lecture, doesn't care whether you understood a word of it, uh, and then goes back to his laboratory to enjoy his life. And I was a totally self-indulgent ivory tower professor, cynical to boot, uh, because I knew as long as I had grants and I brought money into the university, the dean was not going to do anything, no matter how incompetent my lectures were. I would go to lectures with the wrong notes just for my own fun, you know. Uh, they were only medical students after all, and they don't remember any biochemistry, so it was a waste of time to begin with. <laughs> but those students would come, and so the best ones would end up sitting in the front, front row, not for the biochemistry, but for the throwaway lines. And they got to me. Uh, because students are hungry. That's what Jordan Peterson has demonstrated. You don't get millions of people uh, paying to go and listen to you like he does, unless you're saying something that matters to them. The sad thing is, if you take his uh, rules for living, if you know the Bible narrative, you don't need those rules. You've got them already. I keep threatening to write a paper about that. I probably will at some point. Uh, he, he wouldn't mind. And by the way, Last week, he put up a video with Peter Kraft. He goes for an hour and a half. 
brilliant. Uh, he's a Christian now, he just doesn't know it completely yet. Uh, and that's the way it should be. I love grace that creeps up on you without you knowing what's going on. And we've had so many examples of that in our life. So thank you for bringing me back to Muskegon. Um, Alan and Sally both have one desire which will not be fulfilled. And that is that I stick to the program. <laughs> I've never been able to do that. So that's the way it is. And I don't have a clock. Oh, there's one there. That's a pity. I can see it, too. Um, do you know what the longest question period I've had in a university was? Have a guess. Five hours. Where? Russia. The worse it gets, the longer the question period. So the best question periods in America are not in the prairies and in the middle. New York, three hours because they've got a hole in their hearts, but they haven't yet found what fills it. And we're not doing our job of doing that. But that's for Sunday morning. That's where we get to. The woke stuff that's going on at the moment. By the way, I've just written up on the, on the white panel over there two columns, and I want you to add to it for my benefit as well as your own. One column is contradictions, order, ordering of goods, and the other is things that you couldn't have believed might happen five years ago that have happened and are bothering your practice of medicine. Um, I, I like to get that kind of information because then it goes into the mixture and comes out in a different form. So uh, Alan wanted me to talk about Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin tonight, but that will happen later. Uh, as I worked on this five lecture series, uh, I realized that if you start attacking where they're attacking, you will lose. Uh, it's better to know why we lost in the first place and then go back to the right starting point. So unsurprisingly, the starting point for this lecture is Genesis. And what you have got to learn as a physician, if you're going to survive the woke world, is how to do this. And the key is to become someone who asks questions and doesn't make statements. Don't make statements. You don't need to. Jesus didn't do it very much. When somebody asked him a question, his usual answer would be, good question. Let me tell you a story. You go figure it out. That's what he did all the while. He never wrote a word except in the sand, so we don't know what he wrote. And yet, what he was reported to have said has endured and it's written on all your hearts in one way or another. You wouldn't be here otherwise. Uh, we need to bear witness to that. We need to, this will be a recurrent theme. All you've got to do is what Jesus said, go and tell what the Lord has done for you. If every Christian did that, we would convert the world in a year or two because we have a story that is amazing, but we've forgotten how to tell it. This is the fourth lecture I've given today. The first two were on the plane, on each leg. It was a different lecture to a different person. And then my driver got another one. So this is the fourth one. I probably share a talk called The Four Levels of Happiness with every third person I sit to on an airplane. And I never force it on them because it's easy. You always say, good morning, how are you? Where are you going? Where you come from? Is it home or away? 
what do you do? And then when they ask me what I do, I say, well, I talk about ethics, culture, faith, and public policy and how we need to fit them together. Because if we don't, we disappear as a culture, as a nation, as an identifiable group of people. Um, and they said, that's a mouthful. What does that involve? I said, well, the easiest way to explain it to you would be to teach you how to be happy. Do you know there are four levels of happiness? At least, that's a good way. It's been around for 2,000 years or more. And everybody's interested because everybody wants to be happy. That's the obsession with our culture, but they've forgotten what it is. Now, that's not the talk this weekend, but you can find it on my website. But it's the most powerful pre-evangelism tool I have in my armament. And I've never had anyone who stopped. And the usual response is, that's the best flight I've ever had. I'll be thinking about it for weeks. That's as it should be. And it ends up, of course, with what I started with, telling what the Lord has done in my life. And everybody has the right to tell their own story, even in the woke world. And you better make it your own story. For doctors, that's easy. They make, the, the bioethicists and the other people, they make up stories to fit the facts. Obama said, this is what we're going to do. Now go and find the data. That's not the, we do it the other way around. That's why we make good scientists. We start with the data. And the data is what your life is like. So your witness when you're having a bad time is that you're having a bad time. Uh, I can be a curmudgeon. I, uh, if you don't believe me, ask my wife and she'll tell you. Uh, and so with the people who worked in my lab, uh, I could be not very pleasant. And then they say, but you claim to be a Christian. I said, yes, that's why I'm a Christian. I'd be so much worse without it. Uh, and it's a work in progress. And they knew that was true as well. Uh, so in fact, of course, the one th what's the one thing Jesus takes from you when you become his disciple in a way that he's not done before? It's your sins. He bought them at what might be called an inflated price. But they do belong to him, don't they? Does that mean he can use them? It does. And the ones you don't want anybody to know about should be top of the list because there's no pride involved in that. It was a long while before I did it. And as usual, my tongue got ahead of my brain on one occasion and I was in the mud up to my neck. Uh, I was asked by the youth pastor to give a talk on sexuality to the youth group. I'd said, yeah, a doctor should be doing that once a year. I didn't do it, of course, but I did it on that occasion. Uh, the only person there when I did it with the young people was the youth pastor's wife. And uh, I did the usual talk about sexually transmitted disease, sexual behavior, why the people who have the best sex for the longest time are virgins who marry virgins. I didn't do that, unfortunately, but uh, three of my children have, and I'm envious of them. Uh, they have better sex lives for longer times because they have no invidious comparisons to make. They're not going to say something you can't take back, which we all do at times. And at the end of the, the talk, I, I said, um, the bottom line is remain a virgin, marry a virgin, and you will never get a sexually transmitted disease, and you will have the best life that's possible in that way. I only wish I'd done it. Why did I say that? And I hope nobody noticed. A few 
A couple of weeks later, about nine o'clock at night, the youth pastor's wife knocked on her door and said, I've been thinking about what you said to the young people and I think you might be able to help me. I'm having an affair, I need to help, I need help. And we were able to help her and as far as I know, her husband forgave her, but of course, the marriage will never be the same. He can be richer in due course, but it, it will never be the same. God took your sins, Christ took your sins, and he will use them. We all like, judge not that ye be not judged, for the judgment you give is the judgment you'll get. Good measure, pressed down and running over, adds Luke. What's he saying? And then he says, he goes on, you hypocrite, why do you want to take a splinter out of your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own eye? And people say he has no sense of humor. What a picture. So what that means for you is if you feel inclined to go and help somebody with a sin that you've never been tempted by, deal with the one you have. It's called hypocrisy. It's not an accident that Paul puts hypocrisy next to murder in one of his lists of sins that matter to the church. Uh, gossip. The churches are gossip mills. You need to stop it. It's not the way to go. And if you do it, you can help without pride. And that's essential. Ask God to give you the strength to use your worst sin to help somebody else. It's a dangerous prayer because he will do it. But it's the beginning of an entirely new and better way of being a disciple. Now, that wasn't supposed to be the beginning of this talk, but there you are. We already got off track once. Let's try and get back on. Do extend my list for me. Nietzsche, Marx and Darwin will come up throughout all of the lectures and a few others as well. Uh, because, of course, Nietzsche knew what he was doing. He said, we have killed God and it's going to be hell for most people. But there will be winners and I like the winners. He wanted strong, tyrannical men. He knew for most people it would be awful. And he rightly died mad. Marx was also, of course, Jewish and knew the story and got it wrong because the usual reasons that you could be thinking about. Uh, Darwin was worried about it. He was married to an evangelical woman who he loved dearly. And right at the beginning of his writing, she wrote him a letter which he kept. Uh, it's a beautiful letter. You can find it in Denton's book, uh, uh, Evolution of Theory in Crisis. And he wrote at the bottom, and she found it after he died. If you knew how many times I had wept over this letter, and in the final edition of the Origin of Species, he was always trying to make it more perfect. There's actually a very veiled bowing of the knee to God at the end. That's why the first question is in the beginning, what or whom? You get it wrong and you, end, you start from a wrong premise, you get to a wrong answer. It can take you a lifetime, as it did Darwin. Anthony Flew, who was the doyen of atheistic philosophers in London when I was a student, he made it at the end of his life. He said, there is a I give up, there is a mind behind the universe. And on this continent, Nagel did the same and got hammered for it in the, the literature. They never went after, oh, I've forgotten the name of the philosopher, the Dutch philosopher from Notre Dame. They never went after him because he was too smart for them. But, and he was always consistent, he never, he was a Christian. 
You'll find him in a book called Philosophers Who Believe. The name will come back in a few minutes. It may be a day or so. So sometime tomorrow I may tell you his name. <laughs> Somebody probably knows it already, the best Christian. That, thank you, of course. Plantinger, yeah. Uh, brilliant, brilliant man. When he gave his first lecture on why science was not incompatible with Christianity, but was indeed dependent upon it in the University of Florida, nobody asked a question at the end of it. They couldn't. And that's the way it should be. And we do, we do silence them, and particularly when you're out of your depth. That's the point about, okay, I'll do it. And the moment you say that, you're on for a wild ride, but that's the way it works. And we're miserable because we don't live that way. And we need to. One of the first time for me was a good many years ago now, 20 or more. And uh, a guy called me, who was the assistant to a Catholic senator in the Canadian system. And there was an attempt by a backbench member's bill to get a euthanasia bill through 20, 25 years ago. Uh, but it was disguised as a bill to protect physicians from being sued for giving larger doses than normal of morphine at the end of their life. Perfectly safe thing to do if you build it up slowly. And he realized that everybody presenting at the committee stage was from the pro-death society, end of the spectrum. There was, uh, we were simply not heard. And there were only two days to go. So he had to scurry around Ottawa to find as many people as he could, and he found three. I was one of them. Uh, a palliative care physician was another, and my erstwhile now dead colleague, uh, Catholic guy who was boring but knew every detail of every paper. And they, we got in, and they got us in the right order uh, without knowing it, with Andre Lafranc first, who laid out all the stuff that doesn't normally get talked about. It's all there, and that surprised the committee. Then the palliative care care physician gave the most beautiful talk about the fact that we no longer know how to recognize a lament. Don't lament when you go into hospital when you've got physician-assisted suicide, because they will interpret it as a request. When somebody at the end of their life says, oh, I've had enough of this, it's time to die, what they want you to say is, no, your life has been so important. They want to be affirmed. They want to be told their life was not meaningless and empty, and everybody's made some contribution. It's a lament, but we don't learn poetry, so we don't understand laments anymore. Uh, our language is going down like this. Just last weekend, I was at the marriage of one of my grandchildren, and I had breakfast with his best friends from university, Christian kids. They knew nothing. They hadn't read anything that mattered. Something is, I'm not recording, I don't know what's happened. I uh, don't think anything's fallen off, that I feel, but I, I can't hear it anymore. So I better stop for a second. Uh, it must have come on disconnected somewhere, wasn't it? It's not that one. Okay. Probably not in my pocket then. What's here? Is it on? We still got power back there, Connor? It voice is on? Okay, let's just switch to the uh, microphone and I'll put new batteries in this. It's probably oh. what's wrong. Oh, okay, so I can hold this. 
Yeah. Will that still be recorded? Yeah. Okay. Sorry for these technical problems. Um, these are the lovely kids, Christian kids. They hadn't read anything outside their subject, and they were mainly in the STEM area. One, there was one girl amongst them, and the others were guys. And the girl was so in awe of my grandson, I'm sure she wanted to marry him, but she wasn't marrying him, uh, because he'd introduced her to books the level of which she had never come across before. I mean, Marilyn Robinson's not the greatest author you've got in North America, but she's good. And Gilead is a good book. And, but she, for her, it, it was amazing. She'd never read anything like that. And we're denying our children the background that they need. That has to, that has to change. Uh, and we can do that. It's, it's not an undoable task to renew our reading. Whoops, what, I wonder what that meant. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's not the second coming, what a pity. Uh, <laughs> but Genesis is the book that you start with for good reason. Now the best book I've read on Genesis is by an unbe unbeliever. Leon Cass from the University of Chicago. Has anybody read his book on reading Genesis? Isn't it amazing? Years ago. It's stunning. I just, I reread it, bits of it regularly, because it's so good. Uh, at the beginning, you want to go back to that one? Yeah. We can leave it on the desk here. No, just leave it on the top, it's fine. I'm not going to knock it off. Bring it down there. Are we good to go now? Okay, fine. He says at the beginning, this book is for unbelievers. He's a third generation secularist Jew, but he knows there's a hole in his life. And he wants to go back to find out what made his great-grandparents go left, which is what they, most of the Jews who left Judaism, that's what they did. And he starts with Genesis. Initially, he and his wife had a few Jewish students in their home. And they started reading Genesis together and enjoying it. Then students heard about it. It became a full course in the University of Chicago, fully subscribed on day one. And a good course, because one prerequisite was you had to be able to read Hebrew. So you didn't have anybody taking the course in order to get a credit. They were reading for wisdom, which is what you find. And just to give you a little jolt, in that first story, there are two creation stories in Genesis, as you know. Uh, in the first story, there are two acts of creation that don't get the individual accolade that they are good. What are they? Raise your hand if you know. Well, you're not, front row, you're not alone. There isn't a hand that's gone up. Somebody does now because I had this conversation. You know now, but he's very nicely. That's my driver, by the way. Um, you can thank him. He's a good driver. He even got me lunch as well. He says, that's really good. It's us and the heavens. The whole creation gets a good, or very good, 
The heavens don't, and we don't. Now, we all know why we don't get it, because God knew that when he created free will for us, that was going to be a problem, but it was going to be overcome, but very painfully on his side, he took his own medicine uh, to redeem us, but it was necessary for, for the project, a creature who could have a relationship with God that no other creature has had, not the angels and not the animals. And he deemed it worthwhile. And the heavens? Well, if you lived at that time and you were in the desert, what was the most awe-inspiring experience you had every day? Ever been in the desert and looked at the sky? It is absolutely stunning when there's no light pollution at all. Go to the middle of Africa and see the southern hemisphere that way. So not surprisingly, their creation myths all involve copulation in the sky, or pretty well all of them. So they worship the sky in that sense. So God says, don't. It's just something I made, and to rub it in. He said, and by the way, I made the stars also. What a put down. Just something I made. As Chesterton says, perhaps to God, the stars are really like little diamonds. He's right at one level. So the Jews think about these things. Another one from Cass, just to whet your appetite so you have to go and read the book. What is the difference between the meeting between Jacob and Esau after a long separation and the meeting of Jacob and Joseph after a long separation? By the way, I didn't get these right either. Well, it's this. When Esau and Jacob met, they fell on one another's shoulders and wept. There wasn't any recrimination. There was forgiveness, restoration of relationship to a degree. But then Esau went his way and Jacob went his. But they didn't, they weren't mad, they weren't angry. And they knew that they belonged to one another in some sense. But when Jacob saw Joseph in Egypt, there's no statement that he kissed him or hugged him or anything like that. And when he blessed his children, he didn't bless Joseph. He blessed Joseph's children. And he crossed his hands to go against Joseph's position. Why? Well, the Jews think it was because Joseph was an Egyptian, culturally. He wasn't a Jew anymore in one sense at least, although he knew God. That level of reading we don't do, do we? Uh, we just read, and that's why we don't enjoy church. I mean, I know that church can be very deadly boring, but you can do one thing every Sunday. If, if your pastor is not up to it and is not doing what needs to be done, you can start doing it. Learn to write praises and write a praise of the passage every week. The Sermon on the Mount has been cent central to my life and part of it was my way of dealing with boredom in church was to take the passage week by week and ask myself, what's the writer trying to say? Why did he structure it in this way? Ask the right questions and the passage comes to life. Uh, you all need to take Bonhoeffer's advice. This, is, this will come up again on Sunday morning because if, if this is the only thing that happens this weekend, it would have been worth my while coming. Especially in difficult times, Bonhoeffer says, Christians need to ask God for a passage of scripture from him to you as a personal gift. And you ask him to bring it to life 
and make it your life text. Well, he made me the way he did, so he didn't give me a verse, he gave me three chapters. The whole of the Sermon on the Mount. So the first thing you do is you read it till you know it by heart. A few weeks in my case. And then you start, it, the, the only way I can describe the experience of this phenomenon is it's like water falling in the desert and it suddenly blooms. It's just astonishing. I, I probably don't go through a day now, ever, haven't done for years without the Sermon on the Mount appearing at some point. And if I wake at night, I do two things immediately, say the Lord's Prayer twice, and then start reciting the Sermon on the Mount to myself. I usually get through 12 verses before I'm back to sleep. We always overestimate how much we're awake. And the best way to know that is to go. The Lord wakes me up and basically is saying, I haven't heard from you today, what's gone wrong? Because I'm not good at prayer, but the middle of the night, the Psalms are full of it, aren't they? Prayers in the night, songs in the night. Uh, wonderful, renewing, beautiful. The, the nearest you get to heaven on this earth, I think. Uh, when you're doing that, it makes a difference to you. People can see it. And it's not you they're looking at. As he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, the children of God. And you see that in an academic world, because academics are nasty people, prima donnas, spiteful, envious. So that causes wars. Every academic department is like that pretty well, unless they've got really good Christians there to keep them safe. And when it gets too bad, somebody has to sort it out, and they need somebody they can trust you know, you're, they know what makes you able to do that. that that's, we're, we're supposed to be that. It's, but all the other bits have to come first. The Beatitudes, our Lord's first public statement, is really a, a statement of how Christian character, the character of a disciple, is formed. It goes from truth to repentance to meekness, to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They follow their logical consequences to mercy, to purity of heart, to seeing God, to peacemakers, and to reach the point where you can't be hurt in one sense. When you are persecuted, rejoice. That's the command. So you know immediately that Christian rejoicing is not something that's produced by subjective maneuvering, as with music, for instance. It's fine to do that. But that's not, that's not rejoicing in the biblical sense. Rejoicing in the biblical sense, Jesus says, when you are reviled, for my name's sake, not because you deserve it, for my name's sake, rejoice and be glad. And he gives you two reasons for that. They've done the same to the prophets who came before you, and your reward in heaven is great. The best bank in the world, in the cosmos, or beyond it. That's what real rejoicing is. It's rational. And that's why Jesus, on the way to the cross, could say to the women who were weeping, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Because it was a triumphal march to the cross. He knew where he was going, he knew what was going to happen, and he knew the outcome. Who, for the vision of what was before him, endured the cross, despising the pain. And Paul later says, he led captivity captive. The analogy being with a triumphal march when uh, 
a Roman general comes back with all the slaves in tow and then proceeds to savage many of them. That's, that's the picture. It's not the church, is it? We're, nobody thinks of us that kind of courage. But it does happen, but you have to go to the developing world to see it by and large. I mean, Christians behind the Iron Curtain in China, places like that. Uh, we may be seeing it. I mean, people are beginning to lose their job in medicine because of uh, their Christian commitments. Uh, they need to be, we need to train you, and this is what partly this weekend is about, on how to preserve that as long as possible because we need the salt effect. So, the scriptures have got to be central. In the beginning, what or whom? No scientist believes that matter is the start of it all because thermodynamics says, the second law, that this cosmos, this creation is finite. It had a beginning, it will have an end. Not as the scriptures say in fervent heat, but in icy cold, absolute zero, when everything is infinitely dispersed. But it's not going to go that far, obviously, because of the scriptures. But if it had an end, it, it had a beginning. What happened before? We don't know. Cass points out that Man doesn't say anything in the first story. Adam doesn't say a word. That's in the second story. Maybe at that stage, he was under development, so to speak. Because until, until we start speaking to one another, our humanity doesn't show very much, does it? It's when we start to speak. We're the only animal who can deal with abstractions. Things that don't have physical existence but are real. You know, I love in, in this context, I, I like speaking in liberal environments. It's exciting and it's fun. And uh, typically I will say something like this. I don't know much about you. I've only been in your university for a, a few hours, but I know some things about you. I know, for instance, that you all hate divorce. And you see the immediate anti-reaction, how dare he say that, that he's so unkind to divorcees. You can see the whole lot, but I, say, I can see how cross you are at my lack of political correctness, but I can also see the bubble over your head. You do hate divorce, and I can tell you why. Has any child ever enjoyed it? The answer is no, isn't it? They may come to the point of recognizing it was inevitable because their parents were stupid, and didn't listen to people who said, you're not made for one another. There's a lot for, I think our churches should say, we're not going to marry you if you don't go through serious counseling to find out whether we, we can bless this marriage as Christians. We haven't done it. And then I say, there you are, you see. It's not only with divorce. When somebody you thought loved you breaks up with you, are you hurt? And what physically has happened to you? It is the immaterial things that matter to you most in your life. Love, truth, justice, honor. They have no material existence and they are real only to us, no other animals, but they are real. And then I say, because I know what he's going to do, I say, I have a, a colleague, someone I've met a couple of times and we would get on, we do get on, uh, a Catholic lady, not married, from a large Catholic family who's given one of the best talks 
uh, on uh, sexuality, I know, called Contraception, Why Not? You can find it on, uh, uh, on the internet. Uh, millions of people have listened to it. And I say to the students, I have a, a, a colleague, an academic colleague, who's been saying to her class for over 20 years, if you will keep my four rules and you divorce, I'll pay you $1,000. She's never paid out. But sorry, that's not tonight's subject. And girls who've never spoken in public say, what are the rules? <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> they, they beg for them. Um, and you'll beg for them too, because I'm not doing them tonight. Um, but that's what happens when you begin to see that the world that God has put us into is very exciting. And that in fact, doctrine and dogma, as uh, Dorothy Sayers says, only a church could make them dull. Um, could you pass me that book? I wasn't going to do this. The, the, the far one, that's right. Thank you. I don't want to pull any wires apart. Uh, this is Dorothy Sayers. Um, this is really uh, going to be Sunday morning, but I'm setting you up a little bit. This is her first chapter in this book. It's Letters to a Diminished Church, written uh, in the first half of the last century. Official Christianity of late years has been having what is known as a bad press. We are constantly assured that churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma and doctrine that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And dogma is the drama. That drama is summarized quite clearly in the creeds of the church. And if we think it is dull, it is because we have either never read it, or those amazing documents, or we have recited them so often and so mechanically as to have lost all sense of their meaning. The plot pivots upon a single character. The whole action is the answer to a single central problem. What think ye of Christ? Before we adopt any of the unofficial solutions, some of which are indeed excessively dull, before we dismiss Christ as a myth, an idealist, a demagogue, a liar, or a lunatic, I have a developing peripheral neuropathy and turning pages is getting difficult. Do no harm to find out what the, it would do no harm to find out what the creeds really say about him. What does the church think of Christ? The church's answer is categorical and uncompromising, and it is this, that Jesus bar Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth, was in fact and in truth, and in the most exact and literal sense of the words, the God by whom all things were made. His body and brain were those of a common man. His personality was the personality of God. So far as that personality could be expressed in human terms, he was not a kind of demon pretending to be human. He was in every respect a genuine living man. He was not merely a man so good as to be like God. He was God. Now, this is not just a pious commonplace. It is not a commonplace at all. For what it means is this, among other things, for that, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. 
What game he is playing with creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work, the lack of money, to the worst of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace, and thought it well worthwhile. That doesn't make you want to read more. It should. That's the story we're supposed to be telling. But we don't tell it with that kind of passion, do we? That's what has to happen. Um, so back to... That's, it's the absence of this commitment to our central story that made wokeism and all these things possible. They're all basically simple logical errors. They shouldn't have flown at all. But they have, and now we have to deal with them. Here I want to insert another prayer, because you're going to need it. I've got a few spare copies of this if you want to get a copy, or you can come and photograph it, whatever. It was written seven centuries ago by a man who wrote one of the most incredible intellectual uh, books of all time, or set of books. Almighty God, give me a deep curiosity about all of your creation. Move me to search and to question. Give me insight and understanding, a retentive memory, and the patience to ponder and reflect. May I not stop short with knowledge, but proceed to the understanding of the heart. Wisdom to view the world with the eyes of faith. Point out the beginning. Direct the progress. Help the completion. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. That's Aquinas in the 13th century. His day opened with that, and he wrote every day, until he had a personal meeting with Christ in the chapel, and he never finished the Summa, the monk who was there heard Christ say to Thomas, Thomas, it is well done. What do you want? And Thomas said, only you, O Lord. And he never wrote another word. He referred to the greatest intellectual feat in five centuries as straw. What's heaven going to be like? If the greatest intellectual feat in five centuries appears as straw, for a couple of minutes in the presence of the glorified Christ, we have no idea what we're going to. But it's going to be overwhelming in the most amazing way. And we get little tastes of it every now and again, that's all, if we take the risks. But without taking the risks, you don't get them. So that means that repentance is necessary. The first two steps in being a disciple is inward honesty followed by repentance. How many of you were in a church last Sunday where repentance wasn't part of the service? Many of you were. And you've certainly been in many services where that is the case. Lewis puts it beautifully, the problem. He says, repentance is not something God demands of you that he could forego if he wishes. Repentance is simply a description of what coming to God is like. Did anyone feel good about themselves when they came into the presence of Christ for the first time? No, they did not. They fell flat on their face. Think of Isaiah in the temple, even John on Patmos. His holiness and the holiness of his love would overwhelm us. 
repentance is the only safe way into the presence of God. He doesn't let us close because we haven't repented. Because anything evil would be instantly destroyed. One of the Archbishops of Canterbury was once in, shortly after he became uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, a very laconic man, Michael. Uh, she interviewed him. She wanted to catch him out, of course. And so she began by saying, Archbishop, did you say your prayers this morning? Good question. And he said, yes. She said, how long did you pray? About one minute. That's not very long. Ah, but it took me half an hour to get there. <laughs> Do you know what, she's talking, what he was talking about? The little girl had no idea. She'd be a social justice warrior who does nothing except have hissy fits uh, uh, if she was alive today. Uh, and I have a great deal of pity for them. Uh, it's sad what's going on. And it's our fault. Because we are meant to be the salt. And that's the point of being a disciple is to be salt. And what salt does is to destroy what is evil and preserve what is good. And we can't look at our lives and say that at the moment, can we? So how did we get to the state that we're in? Well, first of all, we don't know, our, we don't know the scriptures anymore. We're biblically illiterate. I grew up in an uneducated church. Nobody in the church that I went to as a child for the first 18 years of my life had, a, had gone to high school. The British working class was as oppressive as the race policies of America were. You couldn't get out of the working class, except the odd one, until after the Second World War. If I'd been born a year or two earlier, I wouldn't be doing this now. I got a scholarship which changed my life. I didn't apply for it. It happened because of the Labour government. Affirmative action of the best sort. Uh, affirming people who don't have talent is cruelty. What you have to do is find people who have talent that's not being developed and develop it. That's, but that's hard work to find them. But that's another subject. We are in a situation where we need to start by dealing with biblical illiteracy. Your children, if they don't know the Bible stories before the age of seven, you've robbed them of their heritage. Because children are not made to think through things, but they have the most incredible memories. So if you want to make your kid feel good, have a competition at memorizing a psalm. You memorize it and they memorize it. They'll leave it in the dust. They have memories like steel traps. Uh, so use that. My mother, she had no education, but she was very smart. And she realized she got a very strange little boy on her hands. So she taught Sunday school. Everybody else learned verses. She said, you should learn the chapter. Because she knew I could. And it was no problem. And I bless her for that because chunks of scripture come back to me at the right moment. But they can't come back if they were never there in the first place. Uh, I was talking and got lost on that trip of before the, the Senate, the, the, the committee in the Houses of Parliament. When it came to my turn, the guy before me was not one of the trio. Uh, it was another guy who was deadly boring. And some of the ministers had nodded off, you know. So the chairman said, Dr. Patrick, don't read your submission. We will read it into the text. Talk to us. So I put down my prepared text and I started to talk. I wish I had written it. I had the distinct sense that I wasn't in charge of what was going on. Um, bits of poetry, quotations. It was stunning to me. 
and it was certainly uh, on the at the end of it I was on a high it stopped the bill and the guy who was the chairman said Dr. Patrick if you use a scalpel like you use words I would like to come and watch but I was so I didn't say what I should have said that wasn't me he wouldn't have understood anyway but that's what happens but the work has got to be done beforehand and he will use it um, Woke times won't bother you then, um, because they're so silly. So get that first premise right, and you're on the way. Then you go on, you see. Uh, the other interesting thing about that creation story, and there are so many interesting things, many of which Cass picks up, but God doesn't speak. If you look, he says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And they were without form. They were just water. And the spirit moved over the surface of the water. Somebody is reporting this. Who is that? Well, of course, it's Christ, the Word. Right there. The Trinity is there in the first few verses for anybody with eyes to see. Isn't that amazing? And when he got to man, I, I think there was a great deal of humor in heaven at that stage. He said, what have we done? And then he created sex. Because it didn't happen in the first story, did it? Male and female created he them. No details about Eve. That comes in the next one. And that's the first time Adam speaks. That's amazing, isn't it? The first time Adam speaks is when he sees a mature female naked. And he says, wow, in effect, uh, Eve is smarter in some ways. When you start reading the stories like that, they come to life, don't they? That's what's meant to happen. And they inform the whole of our culture. Now, God allows us. He allowed the world to get very bad, doesn't he? He got so bad, he said, I'm going to wipe them all out, except Noah. He still didn't make it explicit, no law. That comes much later. All along the way, of course, he's teaching. When they come out of Egypt, uh, then he speaks the law. And have you ever noticed that the law is introduced by grace? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That introduces the law in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. Could they get out of Egypt on their own? No, that was grace. So did God change his character between the grace of bringing them out of Egypt and thou shalt not? No. But the moment you accept that, you're not going to have any nonsense about tolerance, are you? God doesn't explain what he's doing. He said, I will not tolerate these ten things. You can easily write the Ten Commandments as the ten divine intolerances. I like doing that because it rubs it in the nose of the liberal. And it is, in fact, legitimate intolerance that makes a society stable. I grew up in working class Birmingham. We didn't lock our doors, blue collar area. There was no robbery. There was no divorce. If a boy misbehaved, his father would sometimes brutally say, you do not insult women. There were no attacks on women. My mother had the gift of speaking 
and women's groups all over the city of Birmingham liked to hear her talk, and sometimes she'd come back late at night on the bus. We never had a car. And then walked for 10, 15 minutes through semi-darkened streets after the Second World War. It was some time before we got the line back. My father never bothered. There were no attacks on women. It was not acceptable. If there had been one, one scream, the guy would not have been alive to, to greet the police. They wouldn't have watched like we do now. They'd have been out of that house and he would have been beaten up at whatever cost. That's the tacit world that comes. I love the idea of tacit knowledge and it's easy to explain to physicians. Uh, and it's the best way to describe conversion. You don't know how you became a Christian. It's not a technical thing. You don't become a Christian by signing a series of propositions and then signing the bottom and saying, no, it doesn't work that way, does it? You don't know how God did it to you. And Jesus tells us that in the story of Nicodemus, and yet we don't read it properly. Nicodemus wants to teach like Jesus does. He can see he has authority. And Jesus gives him an Irish answer. You can't get to where you want to go from here. That's what he says to him. You can't do it. Until you are born of the Spirit, you cannot comprehend. The understanding that you are now God's child is a gift. And that's the way you should tell it. I love it when, when someone that I know academically finds that I'm a Christian and then says, oh, that's a stupid load of old rubbish, you know. And I say, I think I can show you're wrong. And I say to him, what do you think happened to my work when I started taking faith seriously? It got better, not worse. And it also gave me the courage to say, okay, I've done that, I'm doing something else now. My faith cannot be described by your science. It's not against your science, but it cannot be described by it. And we should revel in that. Everybody knows the most important things in your life, like love, can't be, can't be reduced to science. And it's the reductionism of science carried over, even into church planning and the like, which is the disaster. This will come up repeatedly. I've already gone over the hour. But you're listening. You have to stop listening and get up and leave. <laughs> you can see where I'm going with this. We need to revel, literally, in what the Lord has done. And he does it in so many ways. And it's in your everyday work as well, or should be. Uh, I'm here at least in part tonight because I'm a patient. And his mother, I've already I told one person this story. They can go to sleep for a, a minute or two. But, but it's beautiful. And nobody can stop you saying it because it's your story. Uh, I spent seven years working on 10 pound two-year-olds in Jamaica with some other people in a, in a unit funded by the British Medical Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. The best job in the world. For seven years, I had to write no grant applications, uh, no paperwork, one letter a year of not more than two pages saying what I'd done in the previous year, what I wanted to do in the next, and how much it would cost, and they paid. Uh, coming to the wretched system in North America was a bit of a shock. Uh, <laughs> But their evaluation was superb. Every year in January, they got three world-class scientists to go to Jamaica, first class at the Wellcome Trust's behest. And we made sure they had a good time, but they didn't spend their time as tourists. 
to have a world-class scientist sitting in your lab watching you do the experiments and say, oh, I think you could do that better. Why don't you do this? That's, that's really, it's gold. I, I thought I could spare two years, uh, but those scientists went back to the trust and said, if you can keep those three guys together, they'll complete the job, but it'll take them at least five years. Can you promise them a reasonable career? So the Wellcome Trust said yes. So we lived in Jamaica for seven years. And I had the privilege of putting the last piece in the puzzle. And Grace was involved in that too. My mother had imprinted on my backside when I was young a very high commitment to truth-telling. <laughs> I learnt that lies in this family were the worst punishment, were punished more than anything else, so own up, it's the best way to go. And so when I was doing this work, I had some preconceptions about what I was looking about for, and some of that was right. But when I started, I got enough data to analyze it properly, there were some outliers. They were so far out from the others that normal scientists who just want to publish would have used the five standard deviation rule, which they certainly were outside and say, something went wrong, but they don't belong in the group as a whole, and publish it without every data point. You don't see the data points most of the time because they're hiding them. But that commitment to truth-telling says, there's no reason for me to neglect that data. So I went and dug out the notes of these children. And I discovered that I had found a way of predicting the small, the last group that we were not saving. If we had a child by this stage, if we got a child who was a 10 pound two year old and we kept it alive for six hours, it was going to survive. Um, the only thing that could kill it is a mother or an American pediatrician. Um, and in both cases, it's because they think they know what nutrition is. One of the most important things is not to poison them with protein at that stage. Give them more than 0.6 of a gram of protein per kilogram per day and you kill them. Because protein is to make the bits and pieces of the body. Just like a car, if it starts making silly noises, you drive to the nearest garage slowly. But if you run out of gas, you don't go anywhere. Those kids are running out of gas, so you give them protein, they turn it into gas. But then they've got to get rid of the bits and pieces that make it a protein and they've cut their kidneys back to minimal function, they die of an acute acidosis. Induced by the doctor. Or the mother if she gets her hands on what she looks upon as good nutrition. So, but we had a small group of kids who died about a week or 10 days after we'd got them in. And we didn't even put any weight on them for a week or 10 days, initially for research reasons, but then it turned out to be good. And we had no, no idea why, because they died quickly. Seen on the morning round, 20 minutes later, found dead in the cot, no pathology. And then I had looked at my data and those data points had all done that. So I had a data point, a piece of data that I could get out of the blood of a child when they came in, which told me that when we tried to feed them, you're going to kill them. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, my mother should have been on the paper. There was a theoretical way to deal with that, to turn the, one, the cells that meant death into ones that meant life with what would be called a poison for those children. So we couldn't do it, except as a last resort, and we had to catch them. So we didn't have all the monitors we have now, but we had nurses, so 
the next one came along. And it happened when the visitors were there, these world-class scientists. So I had to tell them what I thought was going to happen in the morning, and it happened at 2 o'clock, and the poison worked. It wouldn't have happened if my mother hadn't brought me up to, to not say something could be dismissed until I could show that it should be dismissed. And of course, it was the solution. It saved thousands of lives. And then we found out there was a neat clinical way to avoid it. Never give a malnourished child food beyond maintenance forcibly. You must patiently wait for them to want it, and then that won't happen. But that's a lovely example. Now back to the other one. The, from that background, arrive in Ottawa with new eyes, and so, lo and behold, there's malnutrition in our pediatric wards in the Western world. We just don't see it. And the first one I found was cystic fibrosis. Uh, 30 years ago, uh, almost every child dying of cystic fibrosis was technically malnourished. They, they're not world vision pictures, but they don't have an adequate body mass to go with their size, and they don't have enough muscle mass, therefore, to run their lungs properly. And so they die that way. The question was, could I reverse it, and was it worth doing? And so I needed to put that through the hoops to get a research project, and I needed volunteers. And the first volunteer, Stephen, was a 15-year-old a, a with a body mass of an 11-year-old, farmer's son who couldn't even lift a small bale. He wanted muscle like nobody's business. When he heard I wanted to try and grow muscle in CF Kids, he volunteered immediately. And I said, you don't even know what I want you to do, and you volunteer. He said, I don't care what it is, I'll do it. And I needed, at that point, to feed him through the nose with a chronic cough. And I needed a month of data. That meant that tube was going to be coughed up frequently, probably 100 times a month. And could he handle that? He said yes, and he did. About halfway through the experiment, one Sunday, he coughed his tube up, and there were lots of admissions, so the nurses called me and said, we're not going to put your tube back till 8 o'clock tonight, so if you want your protocol followed, you've got to come and put it in yourself. I said, fine. I drove into the hospital, put in the tube. Uh, when I got to his bed, I was wearing a suit. It was Sunday, and I went to church, and you wore suits in those days. And he said, oh, you go to church? I said, yes, do you? He turned out he was Catholic, I was Protestant. We said, no more. But his amazing mother, a saint, who was going to lose three kids to CF, she didn't have a normal. Uh, the next week stopped me in the corridor and said, you had an opportunity on Sunday to, to talk to Stephen about faith and you didn't do it. You could do that very well. She had no data for that at all. No evidence that that was the truth. And I took no notice. It was going to be four years before I took any notice. But I did become friendly with Stephen after that. It didn't work for him. But he got 600 grams, but we knew we were going to make this work, and we did. So we put the first permanent feeding tube into a CF child over 30 years ago in Ottawa. It's now. If you go to a CF clinic, an adult clinic, you'll find people who've got a permanent feeding tube uh, for the last five years of their life. And they get an extra 1,000, 1,500 calories a night when they need it, or even more when they've lost weight, because you can't put on weight while they're infected. It's worked beautifully, absolutely stunningly well. But... Four years after that first experiment, I was called to see Stephen in the middle of the day, and when I got to his room, he was dying. His mum was sitting there by the bed, doing nothing, quite right, and he was saying nothing, which is what happens as CO2 goes up. Fortunately, he wasn't anoxic. 
But when I came in, he immediately woke up and said, good, I want to talk to you. Sit down. I mean, not the usual doctor-patient relationship. <laughs> and he said this. He said, it says in the Bible, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. I'm 19 and I'm dying and I don't want to. What do you say? I didn't know what to say. I tried to escape the professorial route. Stephen, that's a difficult question. It will take a while. And he said, I've got a little while. He still had a sense of humor. Yeah, he liked Monty Python, so did I. Um, so I had to work my way through the creeds. What else could I do? The trouble was he believed them. But it wasn't helping. Lord, help. That prayer is always answered, in my experience anyway. And into my head popped Annie Dillard, of all people. And it turned out it was a footnote in Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, where she says, oh, yes, God will provide for all your needs, but do read the small print. He decides what your needs are, not you. So I knew what to say. I'd already pointed out to Stephen there were children running on that ward who wouldn't have been able to walk because of him. Little boys in Canada who were skating for an extra five years for a minute at a time because of him. He'd done more for other people's good than most of us do in a lifetime. And I said, Stephen, I think what God is saying to you is something like this. Stephen, you have done all that I want you to do. You've coughed enough. It's time to come home. Both you and I know that you're going to die in the next few hours. Because it's God that's behind this and he loves you. Can you believe that that will be a good thing? A very profound silence, and never have I enjoyed a smile more. And he smiled and said, thank you. That helps. I think I can. His mother hadn't said a word. This took about half an hour. And he died very peacefully a few hours later. But it, that wasn't for him, really, because he was going to get the answer anyway at the time that he got it, the real answer. It was for me, and for me it was a guilt trip. And for his mother, it was very important. She was going to go through this three times to find out that it, it wasn't necessarily bad. And she wrote me a note, which I lost for about 20 years, and it fell out of a book a couple of years ago. So I had improved her, the style with which she wrote her letter, and I don't begrudge her that. She deserves it. Uh, it was not quite so stylistic. But she said, in effect, it was ironic. You are not allowed to give Stephen food for his body. But thank God you were there when he needed food for his soul. He'd been asking his priest, his doctor, his family, and they'd all push it away, saying, you're not dying, Stephen, you don't need to talk about that. He knew he was. He did want to talk about it. Within a week, I heard of another child that I was, had worked with who died asking the same question. I never knew about it. He, he didn't get the answer till he got to heaven. But you don't want to miss those moments, do you? They make life worthwhile. And they make the management of COVID look stupid. Death is important. It's much more important than epidemiology. And for Christians, when Wesley was upbraided by dull Anglicans that he was too emotional, he would say, come and watch our people die. Never miss an opportunity to be at the deathbed of somebody who truly believes. And the humbler they are, the better. God turns up. And you see it. 
read Diane Conf's little book, A Window on Heaven, if you want more. This is our story. I've only started telling it. I've got to do one more thing because I'll never get through anywhere near what I want to do uh, in the rest. So there's a lot of cutout. But we, I mentioned briefly that the Ten Commandments. That is the beginning of law. That's where it comes from. It's, what Moses does in Deuteronomy is a commencement address. And he first says to the children of Israel, you have a law, this is so politically incorrect, it's a wonder that liberals hadn't wanted the verse taken out of the Bible, that all the tribes around you will say is better than their law. They're not all equal. Cultures are not equal. People are not equal. Equity is not available on this earth. God didn't make it that way. He gave gifts to uh, Oliab and what was the other guy? Uh, artistic gifts to make the, the things in the, the temple. They're not yours by right if you have them. It's a gift. Give the, back, the gift back to the giver and it will grow. It's all gift. So Moses says that and he says, you're going to screw up too, by the way. And God knew that because you may have had an amazing conversion, but you didn't have a volcano, uh, thunder and lightning, and God speaking to you in your own language, did you? That's what the children of Israel had. And you talk to serious Jews, they say, we had our free will taken away at that moment for your benefit. Because if you were at Mount Sinai, the option of not believing in God was not available to you anymore, was it? You couldn't. You'd seen him. You'd heard him. They all believed in God. There was no way they could do otherwise. It wasn't a matter of belief. I've seen it. But God doesn't want that. He doesn't, he's got plenty of angels. They've seen God, so they can't deny it either. But he wants lovers. The way we are to tell our story is as a love story, because that's what it is. And so Moses says, well, God said to him, Oh, that they would have such a heart and mind as this to keep my law, that it might go well with them and their children forever. But they won't. And they didn't. So what do we do? Pack up and go home? No, says Moses. There's hope. Deuteronomy 6, the center of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What comes next? Hmm? No. That's in Leviticus. And your neighbor is yourself. In Deuteronomy, it's more interesting. It has two points after that. The first one is, this, these things shall be upon your heart. They must be central to your life if you're going to pass it on to your children. The passionate center of your life must be seen by your children. And you are to teach them the stories at your dining room table. Not in church. In every, every day. And you do it when they ask for it. You don't force it on children. You wait until they ask questions. So when your son asks you, why do we have to go to another boring church service? You don't say, because we do that as a family. You tell him the story. We were slaves in Egypt and God rescued us and brought us through the promised land. Don't you think we should give an hour or two a week to a God like that? And children are honest when they want to say, yeah, that's reasonable. And they'll go. And you've begun to form a tacit world, which is how culture forms. Conversion comes quickly. Culture takes centuries. You can, you can lose your culture. The Chinese lost their culture five centuries ago in 50 years. It looks like they're going to do it again. 
You could lose your culture in America in 50 years or less. If we lose our story, we've got to take it a lot more seriously. More of that tomorrow. Sorry, that was an hour and 20 minutes. That's short for me. Thank you, Dr. John. And thank you guys all for listening. If you guys are enjoying this, please subscribe, share it with a friend. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe there as well. If you guys have questions, feel free to ask that by going to the link in the description down below or going to www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Thank you guys and we'll see you next week.